0: A very good morning to you. Mary Fagan here with you this morning, All Saints Day on Horizons. It's a time of change. The clocks went back an hour last night. We're coming together again more than we were. And we're moving forward in hope my special guest this morning is Bishop Kenneth Kieran. It's a time for change for him as well. His retirement as Church of Ireland, Bishop of Limerick, Killaloo and Ardfert happens today. I chatted to him prior to the announcement of his retirement. Right, Reverend Dr. Kenneth Kieran, Bishop of Limerick and Killaloo. Thank you very much for joining me this morning on Horizons.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here and to meet you.
0: You're a doctor. Is it a doctorate in theology?
1: The doctorates are honorary doctorates and I got them in the United States. In my previous work before I became bishop, I was secretary general of the Anglican Communion, which is a worldwide job based in London. And I was trying to work with reconciliation work between the American church and the churches of Africa, which have been very divided over the question of sexuality in recent years. I spent a lot of time both in the United States and in Africa just listening to the different perspectives that were there when the churches on that very vexed issue of sexuality. As you know, it's dividing churches, but it's also dividing societies. And when you're working with a global body like the Anglican Communion, it obviously raises all sorts of divisions and tensions. I was trying to work to develop a sort of sense of mutual understanding of the different perspectives and explore some form of tolerance of the different perspectives and recognise that each church was behaving according to its own integrity.
0: The tolerance, would you see that education too is part of educating attitudes and changing attitudes as well?
1: Education can be, and I think education is part of it, but can sometimes appear a bit patronising to say that people need to be educated in order to get it and someone is lacking in it. When you're dealing with matters of faith, you're dealing with things that profoundly matter to people and you're not just dealing with people at a rational level, but they're dealing at a deep spiritual level, an emotional level. And what happens, I think, when churches are divided on issues or individual congregations or whatever, the issues on both sides matter very, very deeply to people, and they touch the very heart of the way they understand faith. Faith is an extraordinarily complex issue, and it's a matter of balancing issues, like what emphasis do you put on biblical tradition and biblical literalism? Some people, that's very important. For others, they see the Bible in a context. Others would emphasize that the Christian faith should make sense in the modern world and should take account of what's happening in society. And that's often when you get into it. It's the differences of emphasis that people bring to a particular issue, not just sexuality, but all sorts of issues. And they're emphasizing, and they're doing it with absolute integrity as they see the faith. But I often find that just simple encounter and talking to one another and talking deeply to one another helps to unpack some of that But I think we also have to accept that in the very complex world in which we live in today, and Ireland is part of that, that we actually actually live with difference and find a way of accepting that some people just profoundly differ on certain issues. But those profound differences don't mean that you have to be divided or that issues of hatred or division come part of it. It's a difficult task and something we're finding very hard to understand, I think, in Irish society generally, and that's sometimes reflected in the churches.
0: Yes I do think that it is hard to come to the realization that some attitudes and positions won't change no matter how much dialogue you go through
1: I think there often is change I mean I'm thinking of my own church where we tend to get ourselves we do most things in public and we tend to get involved in all sorts of issues that seem divisive you know when I started my ministry I remember all the divisions about women's ministry and ordained women and You have to respect the fact that people felt profoundly different about it. But I think we found a way of saying, well, we do recognise that for some people, the move towards women's ministry is very, very important. And for others, it isn't, and they want to emphasise a more traditional view. And I think by talking, and we seemed as a church to be talking about the issue forever, but when we finally made the decision, it's actually been a decision that's been very deeply respected and recognised and so, for example, in my own diocese, I don't think there's many people who nowadays object to the women's ordination. In fact, they appreciate the ministry of women, just like they appreciate with men. And sometimes now, when I'm making an appointment to a parish, when I meet the lay people there, often one of the things they'll actually say is, it doesn't matter to us whether it's a man or a woman, we want the best person for this job. And that's a very heartening thing to hear. And uh, sometimes just by talking and talking and talking, you can find some way which respects the integrity of people but also allows them to move forward.
0: As you can imagine, I'm more familiar with the Catholic Church. And if you were in the position to advise the Catholic Church, especially around the women's issue and ordination of women, what would you say?
1: I would never choose to advise any other church. They must do it with their own integrity. So,
0: But I'd imagine you'd be tempted to have insights into something that you've experienced in your own church all the way along the line.
1: I think I found in most issues within church, as we worked through many issues like this, that actually seeing the difference being experienced. I remember when I was rector of a parish, we were one of the parishes where students who were in training for ordination were placed um, for experience. And we'd been asked to have a student who was a woman. And I decided not to say it to the congregation beforehand. They knew a student was coming, and they weren't surprised with that. But I didn't mention the fact that the student was a woman until the first Sunday, and she turned up robed and so on. I think there was an element of surprise, but a very elderly woman, rather loudly at the church door, she said, I'm glad I didn't know that was going to happen in advance, but now that I've seen it, I'm actually very happy. That's an important experience, and that actually helps you leave the division, the divisive, and the tensions behind So I think the experience of women doing the job is actually quite changing and quite heartening within our own church. And I think that's probably the way other churches will probably handle the issue in the future. Doesn't mean that I'm telling the Catholic Church what it should do in the future. I wouldn't dare.
0: That is really, really nice. Thank you for sharing that. Kenneth, can I go back to the start, because we got into the heavy stuff straight away. Tell me a little bit about yourself and where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, OK. I came from a very average family. I lived in South Dublin, a sandy mountain, if people know the area of Dublin. My father worked in a bank. My mother was, uh, in those days, worked in a newspaper office. She was in the front office of one of the newspapers. But of course, in those days, she had to give up work when she was married. So I grew up in an ordinary home. They were both good church people, but there was no one in my family had ever been ordained. And I suppose through school, I probably would have told you I was doing accountancy or something like that. It was in university that I began to wonder and look at other options, and consider wondering whether ordained ministry was the appropriate route for me to explore.
0: So are you good at maths?
1: I was very good at maths. I was, yeah, I was. I loved maths and it's a sort of a world I do enjoy, yeah.
0: Have you brothers and sisters? And yeah. tell us more about the surprise of the vocation.
1: Yeah, I have one sister. Myself, and my sister grew up in Dublin, as you can imagine. My parents were surprised, but not devastated by it or anything like that. They were very supportive. They were a little bit worried that I was walking into something that actually they had no experience of either. But we talked it through and we explored it. And I was never, I didn't have a blinding flash about vocation or anything like that. It was a very gradual thing. I was very hesitant, I was very wondering very careful about who I talked to about it. But as I got more and more involved and exploring, I began to see that that was the appropriate thing for me. And I think if you want to put that in religious language, you begin to say, that's what God wanted me to do. But I'm not one of these people that had a blinding flash that I should be ordained. And that was it. I always had questions. And that's been a healthy thing. And I think I would say that through most of my life, I prefer to be at the edge of faith rather than at the heart of it, if you know what I mean. I was very interested in bioethics and medical ethics and issues like that. And there are areas where Christian faith is really up against really difficult issues and uh, challenges.
0: Sounds to me like you like dealing with the challenges and the serious questions.
1: I do, because from my faith point of view, I really think the Christian faith has got to make sense in the real world. And I think sometimes we can wander into a language and a world where actually the secular and the outside world just understand what we're talking about and I'm always very uneasy about that. I do think faith has to make sense and it also has something to say to the world and to modern life. And I think we as churches will fail if we fail to engage with the lives, the real lives lived with ordinary people in their everyday life. That's what the church is about. If we believe that the world in which we live is created by God, then God will speak through that creation, will speak through the people we meet in the street, will speak through the experiences of everyday people. And that's where the challenge, the church has got to make sense of it. But I do believe that if the church were to say something, if my church were to say something that actually just didn't make sense or was contrary to science or contrary to reason or something like that, I'd have real questions about whether my church was actually being responsible in what it was saying and whether it was genuinely authoritative.
0: I'm chatting to Anglican Bishop Kenneth Kieran on his retirement. Come back to me after this short break. Welcome back. You're listening to Horizons on Radio Kerry. I'm in conversation with Bishop Kenneth Kieran. Talk to me about where your vocation, your career has led you, the different places you've been.
1: Actually, I spent a lot of time at university in Trinity College in Dublin, where I did a degree in philosophy and I specialised in atheism. Then I went to Cambridge for a very interesting period as a postgraduate student. I was married at the time, so we had all the struggles of being a married student. Then I came back to be curate in Rohini and Kulak, uh, which if you know that in Dublin area, it's big housing estates. And that was fascinating, and a great learning experience. I went from there to be Dean of Residence in Trinity College for quite a number of years. During that time, I began to teach in Trinity. I was teaching ethics and then specialised in medical ethics. and I introduced bioethics into the curriculum in Trinity. That drew me into teaching in the medical school and later on in the Department of Genetics and to teach very secular students in their courses on ethics. And I wasn't trying to impose Christian ethics. I was helping to unpick the, the moral questions that they were facing. That was fascinating. So that was my time at Trinity.
0: Well, Bioethics. What is that exactly?
1: Well, it's the whole of the ethical issues raised by the biological sciences. So it's everything from the beginning-of-life questions to end-of-life questions. It raises fertility questions. But also it widens into all the other medical questions like consent Who consents to what? How you allocate resources, scarce resources. When you can't have an expensive treatment for everyone, who do you choose gets the treatment? Those sort of difficult questions that often face medical people these days. So I taught a long time in that. Bioethics also stretches into genetics, and that's a lot about who owns your DNA, what right do you have, who owns it, who can interfere with it, and the moral questions about particular forms of genetic treatment, which may actually alter you as a person and even affect your children.
0: Those issues, they would be bottomless. But I'm trying to make it simple for myself and for listeners. So in relation to the pandemic, were you happy? Have you been happy with how vaccines have been dealt with in Ireland, for example?
1: Yes, I have. But I've also noticed that government, I think, wisely has resisted, for example, issues about the allocation of the vaccine based on principles other than just absolute and utter fairness, uh, if you like. They've done it by an age thing, and that's effectively first come, first serve, according to your age. But there's always been demands by some people believe they're more important to society than others. And I can understand the arguments of those who are in frontline positions, but if you actually think about the issues that face the whole of society, if you start judging that someone is more important than another, then where do you go? And I can see why For example, nurses and doctors had to have the vaccine early on. But then you get into other sectors of society who might say, I want it, I I think we need it, we're frontline. Like the person in the shop is a frontline person, much more frontline than most. The lorry driver who delivers the food to the supermarket, the person who stacks the shelves, they're all frontline. And once you get into that, you realise you can't decide. So if you can't decide, then you must have a very fair, random allocation, which I think our government has done well by allocating just simply on age, because that was the basis of vulnerability.
0: Yes, I felt an element of surprise when the president didn't get it straight away, when the Taoiseach didn't get it straight away, because I felt, well, we really need our leaders.
1: Yeah, and I think they were the right decisions, because it's based on personal vulnerability, and it was quite clear that age was a huge factor. In the early days, the death rate was among older people, But uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how it's evolved. I think we've handled it very, very well and very wisely. But it's a very difficult issue. I think the whole pandemic has taught us a lot of other things, though, in society as well, which are very important.
0: What do you think it has taught us?
1: I think one of the issues that society, particularly Western society, has been challenged about is the assumption that actually in society we can fix everything, that actually everything had a solution. And so you can see that over the years, um, various things happen in society and suddenly there's a solution to it. Covid taught us that there are issues that we are actually vulnerable about as a society and can't say there's a solution to everything. The idea that there's a solution to everything is a very secular fallacy. But It's current now. If you think previous generations, generations before mine, they would have experienced war, famine, if you go back in Irish history, poverty and so on. Things over which we had no control. And people learned to live with the fact that there were areas of life that they didn't have control over. I think in the last 40, 50 years, as we've developed hugely as a society, it's wonderful to see it, but we've also begun to assume that, like, we can do anything, money's everything, we'll always buy our way out of whatever the situation is, and COVID has stopped us. And I think that's one of the big things we've learned, that not, not everything is fixable. We've also, I think, been forced to rediscover the role of community We've suddenly realised that while we sort of keep in touch with our families, even by Zoom or by you know, Skype or whatever, we actually need the wider community as well. We need to be able to meet people in the shops and we need to bump into people in the street and whatever. And that community is very important to us. So we've also learnt that we need community and that actually community is much more valuable than we ever thought it was. I think we've also learnt as a society that we need neighbours. I think in Ireland, we're very used to being a neighbour to someone who is in need. And I think the pandemic has taught us that sometimes we're the ones who need the neighbour to talk over the wall, do the shopping for us. Maybe we can't get out. We need a lift somewhere just to talk. So we've learned a lot of those things. And I think you start with those issues, those things that society is learning and hopefully will learn. And then you work back to where the church should respond to all of that, which is my general theme. You start with society. And then you see where the church responds. So I think the church tries to be a community and it also tries to be a neighbour. But the pandemic has taught us how to do that very differently.
0: Talking about the church response then, do you think the church has responded, is responding well? What do you think their response is like, Bishop Kenneth?
1: I think it's been a mixed bag, to be honest with you. I admire the vast majority of clergy, the way they've adapted and gone on to Zoom and YouTube and email and all that sort of thing in providing for people's regular needs for spiritual care and love. But I think as a church, we now have to begin the real task of how do we sustain a modern understanding of community. The church is community and we actually have a lot of experience of what it is to be community. And a church community is actually a very accepting community. It's a very tolerant place if you think of it. We don't choose the people who turn up to our church on a Sunday or who we mix with. We just take them as they are. That's a good lesson. But I think we now need to Regain our confidence that we actually have a form of community that actually is a benefit to society, and we need to be confident enough about that. Modernize our understanding and share it.
0: Have you concrete examples? Have you thought out how this is done in reality?
1: I think that's very difficult, and that's the difficult question: how we're going to do it. And I don't think one person is going to think of how that's going to be done in the future. But I think, first of all, the church. Traditionally has been, as I've already said, a very accepting community. But unfortunately, it's now getting itself into areas where it's beginning to judge the people. It wants to be part of the community with it. We need to be very clear that the Christian church is a community without boundaries, without barricades. And it actually is genuinely a welcoming and opening community, particularly for those who are marginalised in society. I'm thinking of those who are lonely or those who don't fit in easily. And we need to be better at that sort of thing.
0: How do you think the churches are judging this? Surely the doors are open to everybody.
1: The doors are open, but if you talk to some people, they don't always feel that comfortable coming into the church. I've had that conversation with young people a lot. I remember actually one particular, I think she's an American girl, but she actually talked about the cringe factor about going to church. She said she's not a person who goes very often to church, but you go into church and there's a whole thing going on and no one's actually explaining it to you or understanding it. From my point of view, it's very, very meaningful. But how do we take the trouble to help someone understand it? And it's just that sort of just sense of making people feel comfortable when they walk in the door. That's only the start of it. But when you walk into a church, do you actually feel that this is a place that you want to belong, you'd like to be there next week? Or are you coming just out of habit?
0: I know you can't prescribe, but you've seen examples of good practice. Like, what are the ways that you can make young people feel, oh, oh, this is good, I like it, I'll come next week.
1: I don't have answers, easy answer to that one. And I'd always say very honestly, I'm not an expert on youth work and I've had no magic formulas. But the very way you phrased your question, how do you make it comfortable enough for they come here next week, may well be part of the problem. Because what we want young people to do is to engage with the Christian faith in the way that suits us. So we do things on Sunday mornings or Saturday evenings, in the case of the Catholic Church, And that's when it's on. And actually, that's sort of a busy time if you're a teenager. You're like, you're typically out on a Saturday night. And Sunday morning is not the best time to be waking up if you've been out late, to say the least, to come to church. So we tend to present them with our formula, what we would like to see. And the question is, do we want them to be members of the church or people of faith? And does Jesus and his life have something to say to the way they live their lives? Is that what we're trying to communicate or are we trying to get them in and uh, improve the age profile of those who already turn up on a Sunday?
0: I don't know about Church of Ireland, but the Catholic Church has failed if they're trying to just get them in to the church buildings.
1: I would also admit the Church of Ireland has failed as well. When I was a rector, I was a rector in Dublin for a while, I think. And I, I, it wasn't an easy formula, but have we really targeted young families And I'm inclined to say young people need the opportunity to get away from it all for a while and just break out of it. They're at a time. They break out of most other things. They don't go with their parents or family norms on anything. So I think church is sometimes part of that. I think the role of the church there is to try to keep in touch with them and so that it is a friendly place. But for many people, many younger people, the first time they contact church is when they want to get married. When I was a rector, and I think a lot of clergy now see it, that that should be a good and a supportive experience for them, that they actually feel for the church. The next time they'll come is when it's a baptism, and that's realistic as well, and it has to be a good experience and begin to understand what's going on. Very many young couples and young families do want to bring their children up in a framework of values and a shape to life. And sometimes we overlay the doctrinal side of the whole thing when actually what people are looking for is just a framework of living that has a value system that actually matters. And I actually do think the Christian value system is the one I want to commend to other people because I actually think it's the best. But I think we need to make sure that that's what we're commending and that we're not selling the membership. But I find that young families will often pick up with church life more easily if they feel comfortable when they turn up to church and that there aren't the expectations of a previous generation being imposed on them. That's easy to say and quite hard to do. But I think if you look at parishes that are successful, I think it's when that sort of openness is there throughout. It often begins with the leadership within that church, but it should spread very quickly to the rest of the people in the parish. And let's admit, the ideal doesn't happen very often. I'll be honest about that. And I certainly didn't present it when I was a rector either.
0: Thank you very much, Reverend Kenneth. We'll take a short break. Come back to us after this break. Welcome back. I'm in conversation with the Right Reverend Dr. Kenneth Kieran. Tell me about your diocese, because it's different to the Catholic diocese. I know that it stretches from Galway to Byrd to Valencia. It's huge.
1: It's absolutely enormous, and most people have that reaction when they hear about it. Yeah, we have about 65 churches scattered around that. The big uh, linking of diocese was um, with Limerick and Killaloo, uh, which happened in the 1970s. When we amalgamated those two dioceses, I think one of the things that now influences hugely is the road network. It is simply a fact that I can get around anywhere. The furthest places are not more than two hours. I live in Limerick. Within two hours, I can be anywhere. So if you think an ordinary day, I can leave at nine o'clock. I'm there for coffee at 11. Spend the whole day there meeting people or whatever it is, meeting clergy, meeting other people.
0: What are you doing with people?
1: The general phrase that's used for Church of Ireland bishops, I think it's used by other bishops as well, but I won't try to speak for others, but Church of Ireland bishops tend to describe themselves as the focus of unity. That's the person, the individual, who gathers the diocese, so they call meetings of clergy together, they provide the sort of coordination, they call meetings of lay people together. When I visit a parish, I'm doing it on behalf of the diocese and representing the diocese to that parish. When I'm meeting a person like yourself in an interview, I'm doing it on behalf of the diocese. If I meet my other colleagues in other churches. I'm doing it on behalf of the Church of Ireland Diocese. So the word focus of unity is the word that we often use. Within our structures, there's not very many areas where I have absolute right to make decisions, but I would have huge influence in the decisions that are made. But there's nearly always a situation where with enough willpower, lay people or clergy could vote against what I want to do, and that would have to be the end of it. The model word we use for authority is the bishop and synod. And I meet with my synod, which is elected representatives, clergy and lay. It's all the clergy and elected lay people from every parish. And we meet once a year. And that's the body that makes the decision. And during the year, then, I'm the one who represents the decisions and works through those decisions.
0: How many clergy have you in this diocese?
1: It's about 20. That has to be taken alongside the fact that we have a fairly sophisticated and well-developed form of lay ministry, For very many years, we have what we call diocesan lay readers, who are lay people who do a fairly rigorous training course, which authorizes them to lead liturgies on Sunday and to preach and so on. That's generally their role. They don't have a pastoral role, usually. About half of our worship would be non sacramental, it would be a ministry of the word, and that's what lay readers would normally conduct. We have various forms of ministry which we're now exploring. So many of our clergy in this part of the world are part time. And that works out in a very interesting way. And we've a very interesting and very able group of clergy who've pulled together for that. We're developing a new form of ministry, which called ordained local ministry. And this is where, particularly in very small communities, a person who would work in a voluntary capacity is ordained and to minister for a very small community. So that person would do the Sundays that are necessary and sacramental ministry. They'd always do it under the oversight of a rector. But the rector might be quite a bit away. This autumn, I'll be ordaining my first OLM, Ordained Local Minister. It's a woman. She'll be living in Carrasavine and she'll be serving the Waterville and Valencia communities. And she'll be doing it under the oversight of the rector, who's based in Kenmare. But for a day-to-day basis, she will be the go-to priest for the small communities there. It's the way, I think, a lot of our church is going to go, particularly in this part of the world where we're quite scattered and isolated.
0: How many bishops are there and are there new changes afoot also?
1: Yeah, we have 12 bishops in the Church of Ireland. That's on the whole island of Ireland. One interesting change, which involves us hugely, is that we have completed negotiations and discussions and plans for the uniting of the Diocese of Limerick and Killaloo with the Diocese of Tuam to the north. Now, that seems absolutely mad if you think about it when you think of the distances, but there's a few things I would say. First of all, motorways have made life an awful lot easier. And the bishop of that huge area will be based in Limerick in the house I live in. But we will also have a residence for that bishop who will then go and stay for a number of days at a time at the Chewham end. During that time, I five, four, five, six days every few weeks. They will have a place to stay and a sort of an apartment and a meeting place. There'll be meeting rooms with that. You know, it's viable and I think it's a big experiment. We as a church are looking forward to it, I must say. We met the clergy of Tuam, and the issues they were facing in ministry were exactly the same as ours. I mean, Ireland, from Sligo to Kerry, is suffering from depopulation. It's happening because of the general drift towards cities. It's also that farming no longer sustains the number of people that it needs anymore. And while there are efforts by government to redress that balance by, you know, factory setting up and businesses and so on, it's still not correcting the the drift that's happening. So numbers are getting smaller. The churches, and I say all of the churches, Catholic Church as well as her own and and Methodist and Presbyterian, are probably the bodies that are staying with communities better than most. I mean, the banks are just closing up like nobody's business. The bus routes are being curtailed. Everything's going. And actually the churches are sticking with the communities. But if we're going to stick with the communities and these communities are going to be smaller because we're a small percentage of the population, then we have to explore new ways of ministry. So we found when we met the clergy and the bishop and so on of and we've umpteen meetings with them, that the issues we were facing were actually exactly the same, and that actually if we put our heads together and with imaginative leadership within the church from the bishop and so on, that we actually could find a way of exploring a different form of being together as a ministry. The rest of the church looked on in First of all, incredulity, but then recognizing that this was imaginative. And I'm delighted to say the rest of the church has very much backed us and supports us.
0: I presume, like all of us, Bishop Kenneth, you've learned a lot through the pandemic. You'll be using Zoom and other ways of meeting as opposed to all the driving around the country. Yeah, exactly.
1: Zoom is one of the great benefits that came out of the pandemic. I do recognise, though, that there are limits to it. Uh, You know, you do need the face-to-face every so often, but you don't need the face-to-face as often as you used to. But meetings for us, which used to take place three or four times a year, i will drop a hat now. We can have a meeting in an evening, just if some issue comes up. And Zoom is just great for that. And that'll be a huge benefit to us all.
0: It occurs to me also that if you just have 12 Church of Ireland bishops across the country as a whole... That could also be an area where you could make decisions, joint decisions and, you know, move things along because there were only 12, you, you could have a lot of joint thinking.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, very much so. And we now, as a House of Bishops, we used to meet about five or six times a year. We now meet pretty regularly on Zoom. Most of our bishops are on the East Coast. You know, I think people often talk about a division between the North and the South. for churches, there's a Northern Ireland and there's a Republic of Ireland division. I think that's a less of a division than from the east to west. If you think of it, the population shift to Antrim, Down, Louth, Dublin, Wicklow, Wexford, Cork, is very different from Donegal, Mayo, Sligo, Clare, Kerry. And the issues facing one side of the country, not just in church terms, all the other terms, are now becoming a world of a difference from the issues that we face in the west of Ireland. If we're trying to take that seriously and be free enough as one, admittedly huge diocese, or one diocese to be able to make those sort of imaginative leaps that we could make ourselves.
0: Bishop Kenneth, tell me a little bit about your own family. Like, how has that worked with your vocation? It's just, that's an interesting thing for somebody from my own faith.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, I, I married to my wife, Jennifer. We had no clerical background, though our family were always church growers. My wife, uh, her father was a clergyman. He actually was a bishop. And her grandfather was a clergyman. So she grew up in that world much more than I did. And we're married. Um, she's a physiotherapist. Um, so she's worked all her life. That's why we've been married. So we've combined that with rearing three children. We have three daughters who are now, to my embarrassment, they're all in their 30s. Um, I think we celebrated my eldest daughter's 40th recently. so I'm, fe- I'm beginning to feel the age. And we have three grandchildren. The grandchildren in the island of Ireland. I have one daughter who is living in New Zealand. She's a GP there. In terms of vocation, I, well, I suppose we grew up used to it. But, like, I do my work and uh, my my wife will be out working and doing her job as well. There are certain things we do in common and my wife is obviously supportive of me doing things. She has retired, so she's not working now, but she's now totally taken up with grandchildren. I have to be honest.
0: And the pandemic, did you find that difficult?
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, Obviously, for everyone, it was difficult, you know, but... uh, particularly when it was the the sort of the, only the few kilometres up the road. We couldn't even see children who were living in Ireland, you know. So I think that's been a huge freedom that we can at least see family who live on the island of Ireland. I think everyone's experiencing that. A uh, bit disappointing about my daughter in New Zealand. She's planning to come home, planning to come home. I think like a lot of families, you know, weddings. I mean, I have a nephew who's trying to get married and the poor guy has put off his wedding. You know, he's, we're heading for November. But that's that's been hard. I think everyone's family has found that as well. We've had a few family deaths during the COVID, and uh, that's also been difficult, you know. So, but like any other family, I don't think we're all that different, if I'm honest with you.
0: Bishop Kenneth, my final question to you is really, you have held a number of positions within your church. What sort of an impact would you be very proud of having left behind?
1: Um, I hope I tried to make a difference at some point and at least bring what I, whatever I was and whatever my experiences were to bear in whatever context I found myself. I've had a very unusual career, a lot of it outside of the Church of Ireland. Worked in ecumenism. I directed the Irish School of Ecumenics. So I hope I just brought all of that experience together and tried to apply it and share it. But I also hope I tried to recognise the experience that exists in everyone else and the wisdom of lay people in parishes and the wisdom of clergy. I think we have a great bunch of clergy here in this diocese. And also good relationships as well. I mean, I work so well with my Catholic neighbours. I mean, Bishop Ray Brown and I, we don't meet often enough. We should meet for coffee more often, but that's probably my fault because I'm always on the road. But when we turn up in events or whatever it is, we just share easily and comfortably. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's a world apart from what happened a generation or two ago. That's pretty good. And I certainly, I think one of the most important things in relationships with my other, uh, my fellow colleagues who are Catholic bishops is that I think if any issue arose, I would find it very easy to pick up the phone and we'll deal with the issue on the phone. Uh, and i think they would feel the same with me.
0: Bishop Kenneth Kieran, thank you very much for chatting to me this morning. It was a great pleasure for me.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: And today, as it so happens, Bishop Kenneth Kieran retires as Church of Ireland Bishop of Limerick, Killaloo, and Ardfert. So we wish him every blessing into the future and thank him for his wonderful work thank you very much for listening to me Mary Fagan this morning on Horizons thank you very much to the production team in particular Paddy Brosnan just a thought for the coming week is from Francis Rowland on the theme of moving forward in hope mass follows directly till this time next Sunday morning have a very good week